1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. Paul continues and he says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we were proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted in each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out, and displease God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. We're going to try to cover these verses tonight. If you were with us last week, we looked at the fact that Paul is defending himself in a sense, and the fact that he had been accused by these people that had come in after he had left Thessalonica, and accusing Paul and the other apostles of being in the, in the ministry for money and power, and they're trying to deceive. Paul continues to remind the church now in Thessalonica about their conduct that they had while they were there with them, so as to refute these false accusations. And he also, as you're going to see, begins to move his words from himself to them and to challenge and encourage them in their trials and their attacks. But before we get into that, even though we touched on it a little bit last week, I want to cover it a little bit more just by taking you, go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want you to kind of look at, Paul had to do this when he wrote to the Corinthian church as well. He had to defend his apostleship. 1 Corinthians 9, we're going to start in verse 1, go all the way to verse 18. Paul had to defend his apostleship and show that he wasn't in the ministry for the money. And he said some of the same things that he's been saying here to the Thessalonians. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are, you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out, treads out the grain. Now is it for oxen that God's concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. 
But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Now Paul has laid out and said, look guys, I didn't expect you to pay for me. I didn't expect you to supply my needs. Now I had every right to. The scripture is very, very clear that that's how God's design has been from the beginning, is that ministers receive their, their living from the gospel. But because this would have been a hindrance to many of you, I actually went the opposite direction. I actually worked as a tent maker and, and I provided for my own needs so that you could never say Paul was in it for the money. And so as he wrote to the Corinthian church, you'll see he's been saying similar things to the church here in Thessalonica because there were those who had come in, as we saw last week, who were saying, well, Paul and Silas and Timothy, well, they're, they're actually, they're only preaching to get money and, and they're trying to deceive you and, and they want power. And Paul says to them, Think back about our conduct. That was not how we acted towards you. He also encouraged them to live their lives in a manner worthy of God, who is calling them into his kingdom and glory. So he doesn't just sit there in his whole time talking about himself and defending himself. He says, oh, and by the way, you guys are also going through those same kind of trials. You might not be out there being accused of being in it for the money or whatever, but you might be accused of trying to deceive people because you're preaching it. And just like those guys that were accusing us and chased us out of your town are still there and rabble rousing where you are, you guys are going through a set of trials as well. And so what I want to do is go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 again. And we look at, at verse 10. You are witnesses, and God also, of how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We're going to stop here and we're going to chase this for a little bit. Because I honestly don't believe we have what Paul is challenging them to challenge to us enough in our churches today. He says, I want to challenge you, like a father encouraging his children, I want to challenge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God that you have. And so what I'm going to do is just show you a few. It's going to seem like a lot, but I'm just going to show you a few because the Bible's full of them, of passages in the scriptures that actually show us how we're supposed to be living our lives in this world that we're in between now and when we get to heaven in such a way that we live in a manner worthy of the calling of God on our life and in a manner that will exemplify the glory of the kingdom of God. So go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll start there. In 1, Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 12. It says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, 
that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, I'm not going to break these verses down because we're going to since it's in our section of 1 Thessalonians. When we get to these verses, I'm going to break them down a lot more. But let me just point out a couple of things and then we'll go on to another passage that talks about how we're to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. He, and you're going to see this in a lot of them. He says, you need to control your body sexually. You need to actually, even though you're saved, you still have the passions in your flesh and you need to learn how to have the Spirit of God control them. By the way, one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit, one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. And a lot of Christians struggle in this area of sexual purity. You'd be amazed how many pastors and preachers have a, a pornography addiction. And the temptations are out there. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, the temptations are even stronger today than they were when some of us were young. Some of us guys, you remember, if you wanted to see a picture of a naked girl back when we were younger, you had to go to a store and buy one in front of somebody here. You, 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 or you had to, hopefully somebody brought one into the locker room or something like that. Nowadays, everybody can just pull one up or thousands on their cell phone. And the Bible's really, really clear. Oh, and the Bible also then goes on and says, don't defraud each other in this matter when it's talking about sexual purity. Years ago, my wife and I, when we were uh, newlyweds, used to travel around the southeast doing youth events and youth disciple now weekends. And we would a lot of times be asked to lead in a dating and sexuality seminars that we would do with young people. And how we set it up was by God's grace and by God's for God's glory. We both were virgins when we got married and we we're one of the few people that could come and say, hey, God's plan's good and it works because most people that teach young people say, well, I didn't obey God's plan, but you need to. But for God's glory, we were able to go in and say it is possible. And we would teach on dating and sexuality and what God's word said. But we would also in that weekend give each of the kids three by five cards that they could write any question they ever wanted to ask about sexuality and anything and not have to put their name on it and just put them in this box. And by the end of the weekend, we will answer every single question that's been asked. We told them we would answer them all. And one of the ones that has stuck in Becky's in my brain is in this one weekend that we did in the Southeast. One of the questions was obviously written by a young girl in the room, and this is what she asked. This was her question. How come the boys in this church pressure me for sex more than the boys in my school? Sexual purity needs to be high on the list of our obedience to God. Go to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, look at verses 11 into chapter 3, verse 8. Again, we're not taking the time to break these all down, but we just want you to hear how the Bible's full of passages that show us how we're to live our lives 
For the grace of God has appeared, Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Also remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of, the regenera of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So again, here we see, I'll not have your passions of your flesh win, self-control, honor amongst each other, love amongst each other, no quarreling. Go to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verses 1 through 21. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant, and off a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be being filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanksgiving always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, do these encouragements and challenges sound familiar? It's a very similar pattern here we're seeing. Avoid sexual immorality. Avoid quarreling. Have an attitude of thankfulness. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Now, I'm going to point out one thing from this, and then we're going to go on to another one. 
Go down again to verse um, uh, 8. He says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, and take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. But then he goes and says, It's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, and therefore it says, awake, O sleeper. Listen, he goes from saying that we're to expose the darkness, but he says, but don't do it by talking about it. See, a lot of Christians love to stand on the soapbox and point out the sin of everybody around them. But here the scripture says, how we expose the darkness is we live as children of the light. An interesting thing happened to me on Monday morning when I was at the golf course with my regular time of playing with my friends on Monday mornings. And I was at the practice green and there's a men's league that goes off in front of us on Mondays. And this man that I had never talked to before came up to me and he goes, are you the preacher? And I said, well, I'm a preacher. I'm not the preacher, but I'm a preacher. He said, well, I have a question. I think it'll be an easy one. I said, what's your question? He said, when you're out there on the golf course and you're playing with people and they are all cussing and using foul language, do you tell them that you're a preacher and tell them to stop that? I go, no, I don't. He goes, why? I said, because it's not my job to be the police. My job is to point people to Jesus. And when people do find out that I'm a preacher, a lot of times they'll curtail their language and say, pardon my French. I said, but we're not as Christians out here to try to get everybody to start acting right. We're to let people know that there's a savior. He goes, oh. And then he left. I have no idea why he was asking the question, but it was a very interesting thing. And so, again, Christians, listen, our job is to allow the Lord to live through us in such a way that we're at peace. We're gentle. We're, our, our flesh is under control. We're not making the crude jokes that everybody likes to make. There's lots of opportunities where you could take something that's been said and twist it into a dirty little laugh. We're not to live like that. When the world is freaking out and complaining about the government and we show that we actually, you know what, God's still got everything right in control. They're going to start to ask us for the reason for the hope that lies within us. But again, too many of us Christians are out there trying to live the Christian life in the flesh. With man's wisdom. And that's not walking in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received. Did Jesus go on his mission to change the government? Was there wicked government in his time? Yes, not just in Rome, but also in the church. But what was he doing? He was coming to fulfill the role that God had given him to live the sinless life, to die for the sins of the world, and to draw men to himself by doing so. And we have been left here, after having been saved, with missions as well. And we're to live out according to the gifting each of us have been given. We're not here to fix America and change the government. We're here to point people to Jesus Christ. And we do that by living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Go to Colossians chapter 4. Look at verses 5 and 6. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Don't miss that. Again, another problem we have, I see in the church, is that a lot of Christians like to have their prepared response. The one way that they share the gospel. 
Well, I always use the four spiritual laws, right? No, no, no. The Bible tells us that God has already told us that when we go out, he's going to give us the words. There's nothing wrong with knowing the four spiritual laws or the Roman road or other ways to share the gospel. But never go with your prepared answer because your prepared answer may not match up with what God's doing in that person's life. And you need to know how to let the spirit of God show you how to answer each person. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. 2 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What sort of people ought we to be in this world that's going to be all burnt up? People of holiness and godliness. Now, folks, are we going to do it perfectly? No. Some of you might still struggle with sexual temptations. Let me take you to one passage real quick, and then we'll get back to where I was going to go. This isn't in my notes. This is free. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 19 and following. 19 through 21. 2 Timothy 2, 19 through 21. I thank God for his mercies are new every day. And this is what he says here. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 19, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Stop, before we go any further. If He's telling Christians to depart from iniquity, it sounds like Christians are still committing iniquity. We do. Oh, but there's good news. Keep reading. Now, in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and clay. Now, some are for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Folks, let me tell you. As we've been listening to these passages that talk about how to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, some of you probably have felt the Holy Spirit convict you of some things. But he showed it to you because he loves you. and He wants you to do well at the final exam, if you will. You're not going to have a final exam whether you get into heaven. That's already been given to you as a gift. But there is a day of judgment for believers. The Bema Seat will we'll be rewarded for what God has been allowed to do through us by our faith. And we'll, we'll suffer loss for the, for the questions we got wrong, if you will. But thank God, in these days between now and then, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and says, hey, you might want to relook at number 13. You're not doing that one too good. Let's get this one fixed so that on the day of judgment, we can actually be rewarded. And so I want to encourage you, as Paul encouraged the Thessalonians, and I want to challenge myself as well, in these days, walk in a manner worthy of the calling you have received. I did not say, go try to live for Jesus. Do you remember what the will of the Lord was according to Ephesians chapter 5? 
be being filled or being under the control of the Holy Spirit. That's a daily laying our flesh on the altar and saying yes to his spirit. That's throughout the day, listening to how the spirit will show us how to answer each person. That's saying no to that really crude joke that just jumped into our head, but would have been really funny in, our, in the locker room, but not doing it. That's actually not being tempted or giving in to the temptation to look at things you're not supposed to look at or to be a part of sexual immorality and all those deals. This is a daily struggle that we're in, and we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're wrestling against principalities and powers. It's a serious battle. But I have good news for you. The Bible says that God won't allow you to be tempted with anything more than you're able to bear. And God controls how much temptation you're allowed. And he also will provide a way to escape. And he'll even use the times of our struggle and our testing in this life as a time for us to go closer to him. So in these days when the world needs to see some light, they don't need to see vigilantes. They need to see people at peace who trust the Lord. I want to challenge you to be one of those people. By the way, I've only scratched the surface of the multitude of passages that talk about how we're to live in these last days. But let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and look again at verse 11. He says, For you know how like a father with his children we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He says, I was with you like a father with his children. By the way, do you know that the Bible also talks in Ephesians when it gives instructions to fathers? It says, don't exasperate your children. Don't frustrate your children. Well, there's lots of ways we do that. But one of the ways that a lot of fathers frustrate their children and exasperate their children is the fathers use the authority that they've been given and they give a lot of commands, but they don't live that way themselves. Paul, all of these passages that I read, and a lot of them were written by God through Paul, would have been rejected immediately if Paul hadn't lived it out himself. I can't challenge you to live this way and have it have its full power if I'm not living it myself. Do you understand? A lot of us want to be preachers. We all want to be teachers. We want to tell everybody else how to live li their life. But I'm going to ask you a question. Are you living it in such a way that your words are backed up by your actions? Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. Let me show you how all through the Bible, the instructions to the, those who are in leadership were actually to them first. And their lives. Look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 4. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. By the way, this is the pastors, the overseers, not just someone who's old. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, not doing, don't be in it for the money, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge. Don't use your power that I've given you and authority to just build yourself up, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You know, when Jesus was on the scene, he said, by the way, guys, listen to what the uh, Pharisees say, because... They're sitting in Moses' seat. They're sharing the word of God. They're teaching the word of God. Don't live like they live. Because they preach it, but they don't live it. 
Let's, let's stop for a second before we go on and let's examine Jesus. Was Jesus God? Good. But he humbled himself and he took the role that God had for him, yet he was still an authority. When he taught, everybody was like, man, this guy's teaching like he has authority. Yet did Jesus domineer and control, you know, with force those who were under his care? Never. He would even, when people were wrestling with whether or not they're going to follow, he'd say, you're free to go. Nobody's holding you here. He was gentle with them. He was patient with them. Think how many times he had to put up with them. Imagine being where he was in the garden as he's praying and blood is coming out. And the guys that he's already begged them a couple of times, just please stay awake and pray with me. Comes back and they're all sleeping. Most of us would have said, you know what? I'm just going to tiptoe out of the garden here and I'm just going to start on with somebody else. But Jesus said, no, come on, let's go. And he was patient. And that's how we need to be with others as well. We need to ex be examples before we can share it. Go to Acts chapter 20. Look at verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he attained with his own blood. As Paul was, in challenging the, as he was encouraging and challenging the Ephesian elders, he said to them, pay careful attention to yourself first. Then you can worry about shepherding others. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11. Look at verse 1. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul wasn't saying... Just do what I do. No, he was saying, I want, as I'm following Christ, I want you to live that way. You follow Christ. When he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, what he's saying was, as I follow Christ, I want you to follow Christ. He's the same one in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, said that the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, teachers, all are supposed to be encouraging everyone to grow up into him who is the head. Don't follow us, but as we follow Christ. Now, let me... Let me say this to you. Go to Philippians 4 and see if you would dare ever say this to anybody. Go to Philippians 4. Look at verse 9. Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's a dangerous one, isn't it? Again, Paul wasn't perfect. If you remember, Paul was the one who said, I don't want to give John Mark another chance. And Barnabas was wise enough to say, I still think God's not done with John Mark and let's give him another chance. And John Mark ended up proving to be for real. And John Mark wrote the gospel to Mark. And Paul, at the end of his life, was humble enough to say, you know what? Go get Mark. He's helpful to me in the ministry. And he had actually reconciled with that whole situation. He didn't do everything perfect. But also for the most part though, he lived his life in such a way that he was walking in a manner worthy of the calling that he had received. And people could walk, look at his life and say, yeah, you know what, we're accusing him of these things but we've got really no evidence. Does that sound like anybody else we know that was accused of things and they could find no real evidence to back up their accusations? 
Jesus. So folks, I want to just encourage you to not live by your principles or live by your, how you think Christians ought to be. You should walk with Jesus and let him do his work in your life to the point that you all of a sudden will have God bring people into your life because they see things in you that they know they need and want. You don't have to go out there and knock on every door. Now go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 though, and there was something we looked at last week that I didn't take the time with, but it ties to where we just were. He just said he was like a father with his children, but look at verses 7 and 8. 1 Thessalonians 2 verses 7 and 8. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. So was Paul like a dad, a father, or was he like a mother? The answer is yes. Now this is important. I want you to listen closely to what we're going to look at here. If you remember from Genesis chapter 1, Male and female were both made in the image of God. We need both the male and the female because both are in the image of God. There's not one that's more valuable or important. Everyone's equal in the eyes of God. Yet, even though there's equality in the eyes of God when it comes to male and female, they have different roles. And we have to keep that in mind as well because God has his purpose and his plans but don't ever think for a second that the female side, I hate to even put it this way because people try to twist it, or that the female side of God, if you will, is not God. It is. Go with me to Isaiah. Look at verse, chapter 49, verses 14 through 16. Isaiah 49. Look at verses 14 through 16. And remember who's speaking now. Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. God, speaking to Israel, saying, a nursing mother, chances are real rare they'll forget their child, but one or two might. They got problems if they do, but God says, I never will. I'm like a nursing mother. You're always on my mind. You're always on my heart. And folks, in this day and age, and I don't have time to go down this road in which Satan is trying to just get rid of the sexes and we're losing a lot of what God wants and what God has made. And I just want you to understand that we need both sides. We need the mercy people. We need the compassion people. Yet those of us who struggle with a little bit of mercy and compassion a little bit, like I do, can't just say, well, that's just who I am. No, no, no. I'm to be exemplifying all of who Jesus is as well. We need to keep that in mind as well. And again, that's why we need to know that's why we need to know when the Spirit of God is showing us when to be a father towards somebody or a mother towards somebody. Have you ever thought about the fact that in John chapter 11, when Jesus lets Lazarus die and then a couple of days later goes to that town, Martha comes out and meets him, and you can double check me, and he, she says these words, 
Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus gives her a sermon. He treated her like a father and gave her a little sermon. Mary comes a little later. She said, you can double check me. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Word for word, what Martha said. And you know what Jesus did with Mary? He cried with her. He wept. You see the danger of saying, well, that's just who I am. No, no, no. You have the Spirit of God within you. We need men. We need women. But we men need to also understand there are going to be need to be times that we show a little bit of God's compassion. There are women need to understand that some of these times you've got to stop coddling and actually give a little backbone for your kids. And you're going to have to let the Spirit of God tell you when that is and how that is. Because only He knows where they are in their journey. And when we've we got lots of people who would love to tell you, well, in this instance, this is what you're going to do with your kid. No. And as you guys are finding out, by the way, Thomas and Emma, and you will find out a lot more, uh, the two you have, even though they look like identical twins two years apart, they're going to be so different. Three years apart. They, they're, they're, they're going to be so different. And you're going to have to let the Spirit of God show you how in those instances to when to be firm and when to be loving. We need both sides. We need men. We need women. But the women need to be when the Spirit of God shows them a little more manly. And the men, when the Spirit of God shows them, need to be a little more womanly. It's kind of tough, isn't it? Paul says, we were like you, like a nursing mother. But we were also, we were like a father encouraging and challenging. There was a balance in the fullness of who God is. And thank God, he's made husband-wife relationship so that those natures that are in each of us can together be used to raise our children and point them to him. I'm going to ask you a question from this passage. Go 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I don't usually quiz you, but I'm going to give you a little quiz tonight. And this is not an easy one. A lot of my, you guys are thinking, I know the answer to this question. The answer is yes. But no, this is a little tougher than that. I'm going to read to you verses 13 through 16. And I'm going to ask you to give what was the evidence that they received Paul, Silas, and Timothy's teaching us from God and not from men. All right. 1 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 13. He says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what is really the word of God, what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both our Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles, then they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. What was the evidence that they received Paul's and Silas and Timothy's teaching as from God and not men? Okay, Jeremy, you were saying they're imitators. At least what were you saying? That they suffered. That they suffered. You guys actually, you, these two answered it for everybody. Nailed it. We saw earlier in first, go back to 1 Thessalonians 1, look at verses 2 and following. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning in our prayers, remembering for God and the Father your work of faith, your labor of love, steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you, and you became imitators of us. 
and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. Now jump down to, um, uh, go, go over now to uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 13 and 14. He says, you received it not as the word of men, but of really as well the word of God, which is the word of believers, for you believers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ, Judea, and you suffered the same things from your own countrymen. We've already seen it. The two things that have shown this was real was, they actually saw, gave evidence that the Spirit of God had come within them. And we saw back in chapter 1 how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And they actually started looking like Christians. And on top of that, when persecution came, they didn't walk away. They stayed firm. And so, folks, that's what I want you to hear. As we walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God, some of the evidences that our salvation is real is that there's going to be an evidence of the Spirit of God. We're actually going to look like a real Christian, not talk like a real Christian, but look like a real Christian. And on top of that, when persecution comes, we don't leave. You see, perseverance and continuation, even in the midst of severe persecution, is one of the evidences of salvation. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. That's why I told you before, I'm excited about the craziness of these days. It's getting harder to fake being a Christian. The attacks on us as believers is going to get worse and worse, even in America. To anybody that say that there's only one way, anybody that say there's a, such a thing as absolute truth, anyone to say that there is such a thing as sin, we're going to be persecuted. We're going to be attacked. Go ahead. Well, if you go back to Acts, where James, they went to Jason's house, and they were saying, oh, well, because you're doing all of this exactly like it. So they were standing out as Christians. Yes. Right? And we're going to see that later on in our study of Thessalonians. We're going to go back and take a look at Jason and some interesting things there as well, but... Definitely. Yes, they became evident. Hey, you guys look like these guys that just came in and they went after them too. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. The Hebrew writer says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul is no pleasure in him." But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. If you know, the Hebrew writer was writing to a group of Christians who had proclaimed Christianity, but because of their persecution and they're losing their jobs and kicked out of synagogue and losing their homes, a lot of them were thinking, you know what, let's go back to Judaism. And the Hebrew writer is dealing with the fact that, hey, if you go back through the book of Hebrews, he was saying, hang on for a second, guys. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the angels. Don't you understand that you've moved into something that's greater? Now, there were some that were thinking about going back, and that's why the Hebrew, writers have, or Hebrew writer had to say over and over some things that were pretty scary, like, hey, if you started and you don't finish, you don't got it, and there's no second chance for you. If you've been once enlightened and you've had God open your eyes to the truth and you turn away from it, there's no repentance. You've already trampled underfoot the blood of the covenant. There's evidence of real salvation. Rain that falls on the ground lands on everything. And some produces crops, some produces thorns. And how you respond to the Holy Spirit coming down is going to be the evidence of your real salvation. And but he says, we have evidence in your life that it's actually real. Why? Because you went through and are going through this kind of suffering and you're sticking. 
I did a message this morning, and it's one I'm going to be preaching a lot around the country on what it means to really follow Jesus and how Christians today really aren't following Christ and the reasons why. And one of the reasons why is discouragement. A lot of people stop following Jesus because he doesn't do things in our life the way we thought he would. John the Baptist even struggled with that, didn't he? John the Baptist was sitting in prison and he said, hey, a couple of his disciples, he said, go, go ask Jesus this question. Are you the one? Or should we look for somebody else? This same John the Baptist who said, that's the one. I saw the Holy Spirit come down on him. But Jesus wasn't acting and doing things like John thought Jesus would. John had been sent by God to preach that the Messiah was going to come and his axe was going to be laid to the root of the trees and his winnowing fork was in his hand and he's going to separate the wheat from the tares. And now Jesus is loving sinners. He's kind. A crushed reed he wouldn't even break. And John the Baptist says he's not looking like I thought he would. And he questioned whether or not he was going to stick. Of course, Jesus says, you go back and tell John everything's right on schedule and quotes him some prophecies about the Messiah. And Jesus then turns to the crowd and says, by the way, John the Baptist looks a little wishy-washy right then, but relax, he's fine. You, you went out in the wilderness to see a prophet. And let me tell you, men born and women, there's none risen greater than John the Baptist. The two men on the road to Emmaus, they were part of that group. We don't know who they were, but they were discouraged. I mean, they told Jesus, not realizing it was Jesus, they said... We thought he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And then on top of that, some of our women went to the tomb this morning and came back and reported that it was empty and they saw angels and a couple of our guys ran to the tomb and came back and said he wasn't there. But we don't know and we're just thinking about heading back. By the way, who chased those guys down when they were discouraged? Jesus. Why? Because he knew that their faith was real. And what did they say? Weren't our hearts burning within us when the scriptures were being shared? Folks, we all get a little weary. I can promise you right now, some of you are getting a little discouraged. We're wishing Jesus would just come on. How much longer? A lot of Christians, as they get older, say, how come he hasn't come to get me personally yet? Let me say something to you. The evidences of real salvation, that you didn't receive the word of man, not some system or some religion, but real salvation, is that... There's evidence of the Spirit and power in your life, and you actually look like a Christian. And secondly, when there is persecution, and God doesn't do things the way you would want Him to, not on your time schedule, you don't quit. There's a forgotten beatitude in Matthew 11, where I was quoting from, where John the Baptist said, Are you the one or should we look for another? Matthew 11, verse 6 says this, Jesus said, Blessed is he who does not fall away on account of me. I love that. Blessed are those of you that don't quit on account of how I run my world. By the way, some of you might be upset about what God's doing in Israel right now. How unfair it seems to one side or the other. Guess what? He didn't ask you. He gets to do things how he wishes. And we're to pray that this would all end up pointing people to Jesus. But he gets to do it however he wants. This is his world. Well, I think it, well, yeah, we've all been trying to get on his throne for a while. Let me caution you. Be careful. Be careful. And you don't have to get an answer here. A lot of us want answers. God, explain yourself. When did you all of a sudden become my judge? He did. 
But even there, there's a lot that we have to accept by faith. And, not, and the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The things revealed to us and to our children. Go to 1 John chapter 2. I've talked about this, but I just want you to see it from the scriptures. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 20. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. As we draw to a close tonight, I want you to notice how Paul describes those who are persecuting them and trying to stop the spread of the gospel. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 2. Look at verses 15 and 16. Listen to how Paul describes those who are trying to stop the, the spread of the gospel. He says, They killed both the Lord Jesus and prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. They were trying to stop the spread of the gospel, and in doing so, they displeased God. By the way, is any of us, I don't need a show of hands, I know the answer to this. Many of you have probably had people say, oh, you can't really share in this setting. That's not, a, that's not the appropriate time or the appropriate place. It was interesting. I was the associate pastor of a church in New Orleans, and I went to a funeral that the senior pastor went and preached, and we're at the graveside. And at the graveside, the pastor preached the gospel clearly but boldly. And in the middle of him doing this at the graveside, one of the family members got up and stormed off. When he was done, the pastor went and found the guy. And he said, I saw you storm off. Why did you storm off? And the guy goes, this was neither the time nor the place for you to share that. And the pastor looked at him and said, there is no better time and no better place. Because we're all going to end up in one of these. Just recently, I was in Gainesville, Florida, on one of my preaching trips and had a day in which I could play golf. And if I have a day and play golf, I'm going to. And I didn't have anybody to play with because the guys I usually play with up there were both sick. And so I actually got paired up with three college students from the University of Florida. I didn't tell them I was a preacher, and I didn't tell them I was a Seminole fan. <laughs> but we got playing, and through the round, of course, they're going to finally ask what the old guy does. And when I told them, you could obviously tell that was the last thing they wanted to hear. I'm always looking to see if the spirit is working, are they receptive, and it was very clear they did not want to hear. They were at a point in their life where they were having fun, they were partying, they were living for themselves, and that was all they wanted to think about. And any idea of anything else, they didn't want to hear it. And so I have learned the Spirit of God tells you when to speak and when not to speak. So I left it alone, helped them in their golf games and their swings a little bit. And when we got to the 18th hole and we were shaking hands, I said, guys, there's nobody coming down the 18th fairway. Give me one minute. They said, what's that? I said, you know I'm a preacher. And you know I haven't preached at you at all. I said, I actually believe the Bible teaches we're not to force on people that don't want to hear it. 
but I also have a heart for you guys, and I would be wrong if I didn't tell you that an eternity is real, and that there's reward and there's wrath. And guys, you would agree that things are getting a little crazy in this world, and they said, yes, sir. I said, don't take eternity lightly. All I'm going to ask you to do is to consider the words and the claims of Jesus Christ, not the church. I want you to consider the words and the claims of Jesus Christ. And I love you enough to not just act like it and that eternity is not going to happen. But I want you to consider and not take it lightly. And they actually thanked me. And then we left. If you really love them, you'll tell them. Oh, be careful. Don't have the attitudes of, well, if I love everybody, I'm going to tell everybody. No, let the Lord tell you when to speak and how to speak, seasoned with salt and graciousness. They displeased God. Go to Acts chapter 5, verse 39. The Sanhedrin's wrestling with what to do with these apostles and these disciples of Jesus now that are continuing this message of this guy that they killed and they say rose from the dead. Start in verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, the teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For behold, these day, before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail." But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And interesting. By the way, Gamaliel said that how many years ago? Over 2,000? Guess what? We're still here. The gospel's real. And those who are fighting against it are fighting against who? God. Can he defend himself? Does he need our help? No, just go as light in the world. Just be light in the world. Oh, some of you may be put to death for your faith. The gospel's offensive. We're not to be offensive. We're to be winsome. The gospel's offensive by itself. But understand, they're not fighting you. They're fighting God. Now, as we wrap up tonight... He makes an interesting statement here. Go back to 1 Thessalonians 2. He says in verse 16, So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now, other translations could be wrath has come upon them completely or forever. What's Paul saying here? What he's saying is this. Paul is so certain of some of these people's permanent rejection of the gospel that he declares their final judgment before it happens. That's what he's saying is. 
These people that are fighting against God, their judgment's already set. Their judgment's already set. In other words, you don't have to worry about fighting back against them. They're going to get it. And by the way, they're going to get it from someone greater than you or I. And he's the one who knows everything. And he's the one who's able to fairly judge. We all like to quote John 3.16, but does anybody know what it says in verses 17 and 18? <laughs> Very good. He didn't come to condemn the world, that what? But to save the world, that the world would be saved through him. But listen, in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In other words, if you stay in that position of rejecting Jesus, don't think to yourself, and I don't know who's watching online right now, don't think to yourself that one day God's going to weigh your good and your bad. The judgment's already been made. The condemnation is already set. You've rejected Jesus. You're already condemned. There's a time period when that judgment will happen. You know, in Genesis 15, God told Abram that his descendants were going to be numerous and that his descendants were going to go into slavery for 400 years. They're going to come out with great wealth. But then he says, I'm going to bring you at that time, after 400 years of slavery, into the promised land. And when you go in there, by the way, I'm going to have you wipe everybody out. But I'm going to wait for 400 years because the sin of the Amorites hasn't reached its full measure yet. When God had the nation of Israel go into the promised land and kill everybody, it was because they had had 400 plus years of opportunity and they had rejected. And God determined that's when the door was shut for them. God's already determined the day of judgment. Acts 17, 31 says he's already set the day. It's already been set. The judgment's coming don't be in the group who rejects God. We're to be in the group that shares the truth, believes the truth, trusts in the truth, lets God handle it in his own time. Let me close with John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. When I started this ministry, or responded to God's call to, in my life to this ministry 17 plus 18 years ago, I thought that my ministry was going to be used to have this revival break out and churches were going to get serious with the Lord. And I've come to realize that God said, I didn't tell you that they were going to listen. I told you to go preach it. What if my ministry, and God has used it where so many have listened, but what if my ministry was also so that on that day when they stood before God and tried to say, I never heard that he played a few videos of Jim Johnson sharing it with them. Not all who are in churches really know Christ. My prayer is that each of us will walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we've received and let the Holy Spirit show you what he wants to work on next. I love you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.